The following podcast contains explicit language. As summer turns to fall, 15-year-old Rick is skipping school during the day and per the Fed's instructions, hanging out at the clubs all night long to soak up whatever intel he could. The lady was on Jefferson and Van Dyke. Uh, the climax was Mount Elliot and Jefferson. Stokes after hours on chain. The police are working around the clock too. Please. They're conducting drug raids based on Rick's precise information. Check out this document I got from Rick's lawyer. It's from December 5th, 1984. It says the source advised they were approached by an individual to transport cocaine. We now know that that source is Rick. The document goes on. Source advised they observed a machine gun among approximately 100 other guns on the premises. Also, that they observed two punch bowls which contained a kilo of cocaine in each. That source also saw a black file cabinet with a quarter of a million dollars in it. The home belonged to Sam Curry, one of the 12 family members from the Curry Drug Organization. Former FBI agent John Anthony says, Rick was the most productive narcotic informant that the FBI had at the time. Those opportunities with, <clears throat> with Rick and the knowledge he had, how often does that come along? Hardly ever. Of course, the Curry gang, they didn't get to be one of Detroit's premier drug organizations because they were fools. When the police kept raiding houses that are rife with cash and cocaine, they didn't think it's simply bad luck for them or great police work. Rick says the Currys suspected there was a rat in the organization, and they wanted it exterminated. From WDIV and Grand Media, this is Shattered, the White Boy Rick Story. Chapter 3, Fight Night in Vegas. By all official accounts, what happened in November of 1984 was an accident. Just a couple of kids playing with a gun. That's what the police said. That's what the insurance company said. Crime historian Scott Bernstein. Rick had just turned 15. I skipped school that day. With another member of the of the Curry organization, Johnny Slim Walker. Went to the McDonald's on Harper and Cadu. I got something to eat. And then went back to Johnny Slim's house. We're watching television. And uh, Johnny Slim excused himself and went upstairs. He called me upstairs and... Telling him he wanted to show him something. And when Rick left the couch and, and went up the stairwell. Johnny Walker was there waiting for him with uh, a gun. They shot me in the stomach. Rick fell down the stairs, began scrambling for his life. All I remember from that point was I was asking him to call 911. He wouldn't call 911. And luckily for Rick, Johnny Walker's girlfriend arrived at the same time. Thank God. She really didn't know what was happening. Johnny himself, I think, went into a bit of a panic that he hadn't been successful in his endeavor, and his girlfriend then was there, so he had an eyewitness if he was going to try to finish him off. And I think she was the one that called 911, to be honest with you. She saved my life. Here's Rick's sister, Dawn Scott. On the way to the hospital, the ambulance driver told Rick, you're going to die. You know, I guess so he could say his last, last whatever prayer to who, who, whoever you want to pray to.
they didn't think he was going to make it. The gunshot had blown a hole in his large intestine. So you wake up at the hospital, and, and what happens? I was on death's door. I mean, the doctor saved my life. There's no bones about it. He stayed with me for probably a half of a day. He never left my side, and I'll never forget the speech that he gave me, you know. He came in, he closed the door, and he said, listen, I don't know what the hell you're into. He said, but you're 15 years old. He said, they have you in here under John Doe, and I'm assuming someone tried to kill you because you're shot. He said, whatever you're into, son, you need to stop because you almost died. Crime historian Scott Bernstein says the shooting sent both the Worshi family and the federal task force into a panic. Members of the task force saw the entire operation spiraling, and if he died, there were going to be a lot of questions to answer. People were going to lose their jobs, possibly go to prison. I remember a lot of people coming and going, people I didn't know. Uh, I was surrounded by police and agents, and everyone wanted to know what happened. And, you know, a lot of, you know, you got to leave the room, a lot of whispering, a lot of pointing, you know, which obviously at that time was FBI and and police that were not in uniforms. I think I played stupid at first and said I didn't know what happened, but I, I knew what happened. Rick remembers his dad being furious with agents for not protecting him. Remember, Senior was out of the loop at this point. The feds, they were getting their information directly from Rick Jr., got in a fight with him in the hospital. My dad never got me involved to the extent where he knew I was out buying drugs. He knew that I was meeting with him, but he never knew how deep they got me involved in shit. Former FBI agent John Anthony. That was the only time where, where it got really sticky, and it was a time when we thought, we, hey, this is over with. Rick says undercover federal agents and police officers convinced him to say the shooting was an accident. By me saying it was an accident, when you get shot in the streets and you keep your mouth shut, it gives you street cred. I took a bullet and kept my mouth shut, you know, so everyone was like, man, this kid's legit. So so did you become, like, closer with the Currys then after? Yeah, absolutely. I started traveling with him and became closer to him and... He reassured me, you know, that he didn't have anything to do with it. Johnny Curry absolutely denies having anything to do with the hit. What I need him did for at that particular time. What I'm gonna do that for? I didn't need him. The only ones that'll ever know the truth is the guy that pulled the trigger and Johnny, I guess. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Rick was released from the hospital with little fanfare. He didn't go into a witness protection program. He went right back into the neighborhood. He went right back to work as an FBI informant. After the shooting, this did not sit well with Rick's dad. He was the only person that knew Rick was an informant. And now that he knew how dangerous this was, he wanted his son to get away from it. But Rick says he just couldn't pull away. He wanted to keep making money. And as long as the feds were willing to keep paying, he was all in. I became addicted to, to the adrenaline and the lifestyle that they had me living. After getting out of the hospital, Rick was relegated to his couch. He's hooked up to a colostomy bag. And his sister Dawn, she becomes his de facto nurse. We stayed in the house for a long time. I mean, you know. I cut clean, kept his wound clean, changed his colostomy bags. But the federal task force mandated with halting the crack epidemic in Detroit had no time to sit idle. They needed inside information on the Currys, who were growing more powerful by the day. Here's my producer, Zach, asking Johnny Curry a question. What, what was it like knowing that all these people um, were getting addicted? I mean, crack is super addictive. What was it like knowing that you were supplying that? Somebody was going to do it. If it wasn't me, somebody was going to do it. So at the time, it was money. And at that time, money was involved. So even if I had a brother or a sister or whatever, if she don't get it from me, she's going to get it from somebody else. So what can you say? You didn't, did you, you didn't, you didn't do drugs. Did I, don't you? Drink, I don't even drink liquor. So I don't even smoke weed or cigarette. I never drank a beer. Businessman. Businessman. That's all I want to be It's a businessman. Uh, They were actually uh, a very smart and savvy group. That's retired FBI agent Herm Groman. Uh, Unlike uh, the Best Friends, the Best Friends organization used a lot more violence and intimidation tactics to achieve their ends. Uh, The Currys did use some of those tactics, but not to the degree that some of the other organizations did. They they attempted to kind of uh, do it on the lowdown. Plus, they had an ace up their sleeve. Gang leader Johnny Curry was married to a woman named Kathy Volson. And Kathy Volson just happened to be the favorite niece of then-mayor of the city of Detroit, Coleman A. Young. There can be no progress in the suburbs unless there's progress in the city. Yeah, he was a hero in the African-American community, very respected in other communities. They might not like him, but they respected him. There can be no great nation if its cities are not great. And so we have within our hands, with our power, the key to turning our nation around. Political consultant Adolph Mongo worked for Coleman Young and was in his inner circle. He says Young fiercely looked out for his friends and family even if they did have to be married to a major drug dealer. Listen, the mayor had a lot of relatives, and he didn't like it, but you know what? What could you do about it? He was protective of his family. So, you know, 
He did what he, anybody would do to protect their family. They say that Kathy could uh, call down to the police department and, and know when drug raids were going to go on. Do you think the police were that dirty that she had that kind of access? Yeah, dirty as hell. What were they doing? Taking the dope, uh, taking the money. Coleman Young died in 1997, and Kathy Volson has never spoken to the media about her relationship with Johnny Curry. But Rick says Kathy Volson's close ties to the mayor allowed her and Johnny Curry access to inside information, like who police were looking at, what houses would be raided, and when. Former FBI agent Herm Groman agrees. Uh, Johnny Curry used that relationship uh, to gain information about uh, whether or not he was a target of investigations. So for the federal task force to get the Currys, it would take an extraordinary effort. Solid and precise information would have to be obtained. Making it more difficult, there were Detroit police officers assigned to the federal task force. They would have to be kept out of the loop for fear they would leak the information. If Johnny and Kathy found out when and where the raids were, they would change their plans and avoid prosecution. The FBI confirms this. The Detroit police officers on the task force chose not to comment. So once again, the feds call on their gold mine of information to infiltrate the Curry gang. 15-year-old Rick Wershey Jr. And this time, they'd be sending him on a field trip to Las Vegas. As 1984 was coming to an end, the sports world was obsessed with professional boxing. The rivalry between four world champions, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. It created a frenzy of fights between the gladiators. Sugar Ray versus Duran, Hagler versus Duran, Hearns versus Duran. Hagler versus Sugar Ray. It went round and round and left the country clamoring for the one matchup they hadn't seen. Tommy the Hitman Hearns versus Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Watching Thomas Hearns stick and move the air. Seeing the Hitman remain cool as the night breeze as Marvin Hagler and his troop pepper him with insults. For boxing fans, this was a hot ticket. For drug dealers, it was a must-be-seen-at event. Especially drug dealers from Detroit. Crime historian Scott Bernstein. Tommy Hearns was Detroit's favorite son. I'm, I'm in a rush to get in there and get the job done. And he had grown up on the east side of Detroit and had a lot of backers and friends that were in the drug game. And whenever he fought, a lot of the dope boys from Detroit, all the dope boys from Detroit would travel to wherever Tommy Hearns was fighting uh, to go watch and go party. When the feds found out Johnny Curry was going to Vegas, they wanted Rick Wershey right by his side. At that time, I still didn't know Rick was telling. I thought he just came down. I didn't think that the feds had sent him down. The Which task was- force saw this as the final piece of the puzzle to solidify Rick as a major player in this world, as someone that could move in circles that really nobody his age or his race was were able to move in. And that final piece of the puzzle was sending him out to Las Vegas on his own dime, or supposedly on his own dime, to take in this fight.
all over the country, airplanes were whisking major drug dealers to Vegas, where they would be picked up in fancy cars, Rolls Royces, Mercedes. They were wearing full-length fur coats and gold chains. I was given a fake ID. I was 15 at the time. The ID made me 21 years old. I remember them telling me, you change your date of birth, but not the, your birth date. So I, instead of 7 they left my birth date 7 and they just made it 63. So if I got questioned, it would roll right off my tongue. So now Rick is old enough to rent a hotel room, to drink at bars, gamble at the casino, and all of it on the government's tab. But he didn't actually go alone to Vegas. His older sister, Dawn, came along. To keep an eye on my brother, you know, because he was only 15, to make sure nothing happened and to be, you know, like sort of the safety net because I'm older and I've always taken care of him. I mean, I pretty much took over raising Rick when my dad wasn't around. I had no idea that he was going to watch the Curry brothers or keep an eye out or get information. I didn't know that for years. Was that your first time in Vegas, and what was that like? It was surreal. It was like, uh, it was kind of like home alone, I guess. You, you would say, like, going on a trip and you're a kid, and I had an ID that I was 21, and... I had a pocket full of money, and I was on the Vegas Strip, and I was 15 years old, and I could do whatever I wanted. Do you remember looking out the window? You were at the Pink Flamingo, right? Do you remember looking out the window? What did you see? I looked across at Caesar's Palace, and I thought about Evil Knievel jumping the fountains. I was like, wow, I'm here. Fight, and here we go, round one. The fight itself between Hearns and Hagler was worth every penny for those who paid to see it. I thought Tommy had him. He okay. had him at first until Hagler felt that blood. He smelled that blood. It was over with then. It was a good fight, but it was quick. Today, it's still considered one of the greatest boxing matches of all time. Hagler won in a third round knockout. It didn't go very far, but it was a beauty. Rick says the feds got their money's worth, too. I'm looking at a copy of the FBI expense report. $450 for Rick's flight. $150 for a fight ticket. $600 for Rick's hotel. $300 for food and incidentals. The feds spent $1,500 to send 15-year-old Rick Wershey to Vegas. When he returned from the trip, Rick met with agents and provided enough information to justify a wiretap on the phones of the Curry brothers. Well, uh, Rick um, had provided that information, but like any other case, eventually you have all of this uh, information. You have presented it to the United States Attorney's Office, and the decision is then made. It is now time to prosecute. Schwartz says by that time, they had a couple other Curry lieutenants giving them information as well. Uh, so you do the, you put together the final uh, uh, raids that need to occur based on the information that you have and that the following people uh, need to be found and, uh, and arrested because they would be part of the Curry gang. The federal indictment was massive. 20 arrests, including Sam, Leo, Ruth, Cassandra, Boo, and Johnny Curry. The Currys saw the evidence against them and all pleaded guilty to deals that would get them 
no more than 15 years behind bars. Retired FBI agent Greg Schwartz remembers Johnny Curry's plea vividly. He, uh, he pled guilty, and uh, when he was walking out of the room, I smiled and I waved to him. And when he got to the elevator, he turned back around and with his hands handcuffed behind his back, he, he waved back at us and boom, he went down the elevator with all the rest of them and that was it. End of story. I was tired. I needed to rest. So when the 15, when the 20 years came and I was going to do 14, hey, that was a walk in the park for me. Otherwise you might have ended up killed out here. Killed. See, that's one thing, that's why I try to tell little kids, it's better to get into some activities now, like my nephew doing with this race car thing. Get into something that to keep you active because it's a lot of them that's dead and gone. I'm still around, looking good. <laughs> Johnny Curry says he didn't find out until years later that Rick helped put him behind bars. Then when I went to prison, things changed. So then I found out everything. The one Curry that did not go to prison? Mayor Coleman Young's niece, and Johnny's wife, Kathy Volson Curry. She hadn't been charged with anything, but the FBI continued watching her, knowing how deep her connections were to the drug world and to the mayor's office. Chris Hansen was a crime reporter in Detroit at the time. So I got a tip that the FBI was going to raid Kathy Volson Curry's townhouse just on the outskirts of downtown Detroit. And I remember getting there and finding out that white boy Rick was in bed with Kathy Olson Curry. Coming up. In some ways, it would be no different if he'd have been dating Janet Jackson or Halle Berry. I mean, in, in that neighborhood, Kathy Volson was... Janet Jackson. She was Halle Perry. Today's episode was produced by Zach Rosen and me. It was edited and mixed by Zach Rosen. Tad Davis is our assistant producer. WDIV's executive producer of special projects is Ro Coppola. WDIV's news director is Kim Bowen. My name is Kevin Dietz. Jerry Lemonu created original illustrations for each episode of this season. See them at whiteboyrick.show. If you like the podcast, consider writing a review for us in the Apple Podcast Store. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shattered Podcast. Don't forget Season 1 of Shattered, all about the missing Skeleton Boys. It's available in this very feed. Thank you for listening 